Before we turn to our reading, do you mind if we just have another prayer for preparation as we open God's word and as we prepare our minds and our hearts to listen to God's word and lead you in prayer? Our gracious God, Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us into your presence so we may worship you, that we may sing praises to you, and that we may open your word. Father, this is an immense privilege that the world does not know, only to your people, to your people Israel, and the new Israel have you given us the light of your revelation. Only to us have you revealed yourself through your word, and we do not take this lightly. And as we open your word, as we read your word, we pray that you would grant us your Holy Spirit, that we do so in reverence and eagerness. And we especially pray that you would bless your servant here. We know that oh, what's happening here is supernatural and we need your supernatural power. What we expect and what we hope for is a transformation of our lives, not just a time of where we grow in information. And Father, we acknowledge that we do so in weakness as clay vessels. So we pray that you would equip your servant, that your word may be proclaimed with power and clarity, with conviction, and also with comfort. Would you reveal to us the power of your word? Would you break down strongholds that Satan has built in our minds? Would you take every thought captive to obey Jesus Christ, our Lord? And King. All this we pray in Christ's name alone. Amen. As our scripture reading, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 to chapter 11, verse 6. If you have the same Bible as I do, it's on page 1150. Page 1151, in fact, actually. The text will be verses 1 to 6. Why don't we, since we're doing scripture reading and text right, right after each other, why don't we just read it in order? We'll read verses 1 to 6, and then we'll read the rest. This is the text, verses 1 to 6. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble and face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. 
If anyone is, conf- is anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends them himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. That's for the reading of God's holy and living word. brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you look back at 2023 and you look forward to 2024, and perhaps makes new, make New Year's resolution if that is what you do, I thought it would be appropriate for us to focus on the topic and the theme of the power of God's word. And that's because this is a sermon I preached yesterday in Spring Creek in, the, in our congregation in my church. The reason for that is because the theme, the home visit theme in Spring Creek for this year, from 2023, September to August 2024, the home visit theme is our prophetic calling. We had a sermon on how we are 
called to be prophets. We have a prophetic calling. Not in that we have to become prophets, but we are already prophets in Christ. We're anointed, we're sharing this anointing as members as we confess in our Halibut Catechism. And then, in that sermon, I emphasize that since you are already prophets, what you're called to do is act as a prophet, which means not to make predictions about the future, but rather to speak God's word, communicate God's word. That's what prophets do. If you summarize what they do, if you have to put it in one line, what they do is speak God's word. That's why they have that constant refrain, thus says the Lord. And that's what you are as well. You are a prophet. And to expand on that theme, I preached on the importance of God's word, the power of God's word. That's something important to think about. We have access to God's word. God's word is readily available to us. We have Bible, multiple Bibles at our home, so we have Bible, we have access to God's word even in our phones, in our pockets. As the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. How precious is God's word to us? Do we truly understand its power? And if we truly understood its power, how is it that we are so reluctant to share God's word with our neighbors, with our loved ones, even at home? How is it so that we are so, speaking, become so routine to us? So often we just go through the motions. Do we know what's actually happening when we communicate God's word and we are steeped in God's word? I'm sure that if we truly knew the power of God's word and the significance of God's word, we cannot help but share God's word with everyone around us. So I chose this inspiring text and prepared a message with the theme, Our Weapons of Warfare Have Divine Power. And this sermon will consider three points, what they are, what the weapons of warfare are, second, how to use them, and third, what they do. So this is a message, this is a topic that I had in mind already, and then I was seeking for a text, I was looking for a text, in order to preach this message, which is in a way a reverse order, right? A minister usually have a text already, then he prepares a message from it. But I already had a message in mind. I wanted to focus on the power of God's word. Then I chose a text. And when I do that, or when ministers do that, they always run the risk of preaching a topical sermon. And that means a message might be loosely related to the text, you might pick up a few words from the text, but it's not really anchored or rooted in the text. And what happens as a listener to you, what, what you experience when that happens is that you might be listening to a sermon and you, see, you can see, okay, I can see where the message is going, but I'm not really sure whether it's flowing from the text. And that's not a good sign. Perhaps, even if it's biblical, it might be an opinion of the minister. So in order to prevent that, it is necessary for us to get to the original message of this text. So we ought to ask ourselves, what was Paul intending to say to the Corinthian church in this text? And then we can see how the message flows from the text. What's going on in verses 1 to 6? 
Who is he talking to? Who is you? Right, he's talking to you in verse, verse 1 and verse 2. And who are those, they, that he was talking about in the rest of chapter 10, the super apostles? Who are they? What is going on in the, in the church of Corinth? What's happening in the historical context? Who are those, for example, in verse 2, who suspect us of walking according to the flesh? So at least there's two people that Paul is talking about in this text. There's you that Paul is addressing. Then there's them, they, who suspect them of walking according to the flesh. What's happening is that Paul is dealing with those who are called super apostles. Also, who are false teachers. These are those who, command, who are commending themselves or boasting about their ability to speak. We read about them. The rest of chapter 10, he commends, they commend themselves. And Paul is saying, we're not those who commend ourselves. The Lord sent us. We, our authority is from us. There's this distance that he's creating. He also said in, in, wrote in chapter 11 that, these super apostles, they are preaching a different gospel from what I've been preaching. They're preaching about a different spirit. In fact, they are preaching a different Jesus. And you, Corinthians, you're readily accepting this. And he says, he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. In order to subversively teach this false message, what these what super apostles did, who called themselves super apostles, what they did was they also criticized Paul and he, they diminished Paul's authority in order to also diminish his message. And what he did was, what they did was he said, Paul, he is impressive, he's bold in his letters, but in his bodily presence, and especially when he preaches and when he speaks, he is unimpressive. He is timid. He is weak. That's why Paul entertains this idea and he calls himself and says, I am, I am humble when I'm face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. But he's also mentioned in, in verse 10, the accusation, the criticism of the super apostles. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. You can see what they're doing. It'll be, in, if, you, if I were to give you a modern-day example, it'll be someone like who's an online bully who is, who is harsh with his words, scathing with his words and comments and posts online with, with the protection, hiding behind the computer with anonymity, being anonymous, but has no courage when face-to-face, -face, no presence, no gravity to this person. And that's the kind of caricature, the criticism, the super apostles is giving to, to Paul and then leading astray the Corinthian members. And what's also happen, happened is that the caricature that they're drawing about, depicting about Paul, is based on what Paul had done. There was a, a setback, so to speak. We don't know exactly the exact details of what happened, but after Paul had established, established the Corinthian church, and he was away because he was on a missionary journey, there was pastoral issues, and he visited the Corinthian church in person briefly to deal with the pastoral issue, but he was unsuccessful. And then because of his duties, he had to go away again, and he tried to address this pastoral issue through letters, which he calls 
You might, as you might know, in 2 Corinthians, he calls it the severe letter. But then again, this issue wasn't revol- resolved again. So he's trying to come back, and that's what we see in our text. So while he, he failed to address a pastoral issue in person, he tried to address it with a harsh letter, a bold letter. And that's what the opponents are picking up and saying, hey, he's, he's weak in his presence in person. He's bold and harsh with his letters. On top of that, they picked up on the fact that Paul had not dealt with the pastoral issue. And he, they claim that he is ineffective in pastoral ministry. And that's because, as in verse 2, he, he describes these people, Paul describes those who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So the super apostles are saying, the reason why Paul is so ineffective of dealing with this pastoral issue is because he relies on his own strength. He relies on his own knowledge and wisdom. And he does not rely on the Holy Spirit. He's work, working, he's walking according to the flesh. So the super apostles were undermining the authority of Paul, the ministry of Paul, and they were trying to sneak in a different false gospel. And that is the context. That is what Paul is dealing with. And so in order to address this division that's happening, this, the church from meeting astray by, by the super apostles, Paul is going back to the Corinthian church. And he says in verse 1 and 2 that he himself entreats them. He begs them that when I am present, that I might not have to show boldness with such confidence. Meaning, listen to the letter that I'm giving to you right now. Don't, don't be led astray by the super apostles. Trust me. Listen to my words. So when I come to you again in, in bodily presence, I don't have to discipline you, as you see in verse 6. And in this letter, he is defending his ministry so that these people, all these members, will not be led astray. And he writes in verse 3, For we though, though we walk in the flesh, he admits that he is weak, that his bodily presence is weak, his speech is Unimpressive. Yes, we are human beings. We walk in the flesh, but and he says, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Then he says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And these weapons of warfare are what we want to focus on in this sermon. So first, let's figure out what these weapons of warfare are. What is Paul talking about when he says, when he says weapons of warfare? Broadly speaking, Paul is talking about his entire ministry. Everything Paul does to build up the church of Corinth and in his missionary journeys, that is preaching of God's word, preaching of the gospel, his prayers, as you know, that he does in multiple letters. In Ephesians, he says he constantly gives thanks. He constantly remembers them in prayer. We also see that what his ministry involves is discipline. That's in verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience. But for the purpose of our sermon, we want, I want to make the point that the primary thing in his ministry is the preaching of God's word. When he talks about the weapons of warfare, he's talking primarily about the preaching of God's word. 
And we can know this in how Paul describes the weapons of warfare and what, what they do. And that's in verses 5 to 6. Where he says the weapons of warfare have divine power to destroy strongholds. What does he mean by strongholds? That's in verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. And that fits well with God's word. That sounds like what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, The foolishness of the gospel destroys the wisdom of the wise. God destroys the wisdom of the wise with the foolishness of the gospel. It's very similar to what Paul is saying in here. He does not explicitly say that this is God's word, but since it destroys arguments, Opinions, thoughts, wisdom, it sounds very much like the gospel. Not only that, we know that Paul often links the power of God with the preaching of the gospel. To give you a couple examples, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God. Romans 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So Paul often talks about the preaching of God's word or God's word or the gospel. And he says it's the power of God. Again, that's also what we see. These weapons of warfare have divine power. There's also a verse that's very similar to our verse that we have in the text, in verse 5, and it's actually in the same letter, Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, when Paul lists a couple of things that, that he does as the servants of God. He wrote this, By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. That's how Paul operates. By truthful speech, the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. See how similar that verse is to the one that we have just read. The weapons of warfare. There's the imagery of weapons. The power of God. Divine power is mentioned. But there explicitly says it's by truthful speech. To sum it up, so what, uh, what is Paul talking about when he says the weapons of warfare? His entire ministry is in view, but the primary weapon of warfare is the proclamation of God's word. And this matters to us because you are prophets and you are called to, call to communicate God's word. Of course, not like Paul, you're not called to communicate and preach the gospel off the pulpit. But you know in, second, in 1 Peter chapter 2 that you are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. You also know that you have the duty and calling to share the hope, to be prepared to share the hope that you have. And doesn't that make us powerful? This text make it powerful, your role as a prophet. Since you're called to speak God's word, you should see that God's word is a weapon of warfare. You might be familiar with Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul talks about the armor of God and tells us to pick up, 
to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So at this point, it's helpful to note, it's necessary for us to note that the word of God is a weapon of warfare and has divine power. Having first noted that, it's also important to know how to use them and to use them wisely. We have this divine weapon with extreme power. And the sad reality is often we are prone to use them and misuse them and abuse them. It is sad that we can, so, we can be so ineffective with God's word. Often we can be counterproductive. We can so often use God's word not to build each other up but to hurt each other. Perhaps that shouldn't be a surprising given that God's word is a divine weapon, a weapon of warfare to extend the metaphor. Some of us are extremely bold to use God's word, perhaps too bold for our own good. Sometimes there's this attitude among us that's expressed in this way. I might not come across as loving, but I show love by telling the truth. And that's often said by people who are blunt and who are harsh. Now, there is a kernel of truth. Yes, at times it is loving to tell the truth. But we all know that speaking the truth in itself is not loving. Quoting the Bible in itself is not loving. It can be hurtful. It can be harmful. Even Satan quoted Bible quoted Psalms to Jesus Christ. That wasn't out of love. It wasn't loving. It was a temptation to Christ. It's extremely hateful, actually. We also know that there is a passage that calls us to speak the truth in love, which is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. So we know that just speaking the word or sharing God's word in itself is not loving. There is a way, a proper way to do so. There's a loving way to do so. Uh, this is also supported by 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the chapter of love, where Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or, or of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So just quoting the Bible to someone or paraphrasing or giving a message from God's word is not loving in itself. You it can be a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong. So it's important to know how to speak God's word. How are we supposed to use this weapons of warfare effectively? Now in our text, Paul gives us an example of how this ought to be done. And this is in verse 2, 1 and 2. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So that's the first thing we see. Sometimes he speaks with meekness and gentleness. He's in fact writing the New Testament. He's inspired to write this word, this God's word, the New Testament. He says he does so with meekness and gentleness of Christ. So at times he does so with gentleness and meekness, but that's not the only thing he does. In verse 2, he also says, I beg of you that when I am present that I, might not, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. And what Paul is saying is that 
I'm first going to approach you with meekness and gentleness through this letter. But if you don't listen, if you're stubborn in your sins, I might have to come with boldness and lump you together with the super apostles. And I, have to, I might have to discipline you. But please listen to me so I don't have to do that. So we at least see two things. At times we have to be gentle and meek when we share God's word and when we communicate God's word. And at times we have to be bold. I wish there was a simple formula that tells us exactly when to do that, when to be bold or when to be meek and gentle. But I'm afraid that's not given to us, not in this text nor in the rest of Scripture. What is helpful, though, is that Paul says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. What we see here is that Paul is imitating Christ. We know that Christ at times were, he was gentle and meek, and then other times he was bold. Think of how he dealt with tax collectors and sinners, those who were oppressed, how gentle and meek he was with them. And how he called some of them even to follow him, to be disciples. Or think of how he dealt with Nicodemus the Pharisee. How he conversed with him, how he taught him. He was meek and gentle at times. Being the best teacher and prophet, the chief prophet. And other times, Christ was bold. We know that he, when he was dealing with that, at one point dealing with the unrepentant scribes and Pharisees, he called them, you are of your father, the devil, calling them the children of devil. We also know that he was extremely bold in the temple when he overturned the table of the money changers. And also at one point, even though Peter was not, you might say, unrepentant, he was not an adversary to Christ. He actually meant wealth for Christ when Peter told him not to go to the cross. Peter, Christ told him boldly, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. So what Paul is doing, at times being meek, at times being bold, he's, what he's doing is he's imitating Christ. He's following the example of Christ And that's what we're called to do as well. We have this divine weapon, the weapons of warfare with divine power. How are we supposed to use them? At times with meekness and gentleness, and at times with boldness. Some of you need to hear that. You have to be meek and gentle when you communicate God's word. Some of you need to hear that. At times you have to be bold. Always being compassionate and caring is not loving. When you speak, in, when you speak the truth in love, sometimes you have to be bold. Despite that being out of your comfort zone. Clearly, it's out of Paul's comfort zone. He begs that he might not have to do so. But he will if he has to. Again, following the example of Christ. As I mentioned again, it's, it's, I wish there was a formula where we can say, at this time you have to be gentle. At this time you have to be bold. But we're not given that. But what we are given is that we can follow the example of Christ. And having said that, we also have the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ is given to us. So we can do this in prayer. In whatever circumstances you find yourself in, 
and whether if, if, you're, if you find it difficult to be, whether you should be gentle or meek, especially if you're an office bearer and you have a disciplined case or a difficult pastoral case, or if you have wayward loved ones, children, you don't know whether you should be gentle and meek. It really depends on the case. depends on the circumstance, right? But let me tell you and remind you that you have the spirit of Christ and Christ did it perfectly and you can seek his help. You can ask the Holy Spirit to help you to know what to do and how to approach this and also to equip you to do so if you're not the one who is able to do show boldness or meekness. The Holy Spirit is able to equip you to do so. So that is how we are called to use the weapons of our warfare. And thirdly, as our final point, let's consider what the weapons of our warfare do. After saying that the weapons of warfare is not of the flesh, of human flesh, but of divine power, has divine power, Paul tells us what is capable, what these weapons are capable of doing. He says, destroy strongholds. Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What Paul is doing here is that he is using a, an extensive metaphor. He's using graphic imagery of warfare. There are lots of warfares, a type, different types of warfare. There, you, you might think of two armies beating at a plane, fighting each other, straight, standing in a straight line or different formations. You can think of naval warfare, naval battles on the sea. But the imagery that Paul is using here is a warfare, a siege warfare. It's a warfare where an army surrounds a stronghold and destroys them. What he's actually doing in verses 5 to 6 is that he walks through the steps of a successful siege warfare. First, he talks about destroying strongholds. Destroying strongholds. You first have to destroy the strongholds with, with siege weapons, with catapults. Scale the walls with siege engines. And once you have stripped down the walls, once you have pulled down the walls of the stronghold, then you infiltrate the city, the stronghold, and then you take captive those who are leaders, those soldiers. And that's what he says next. Take every thought captive. And then when you have conquered the city, once you have taken over the stronghold, the next thing you do is to punish those who are rebellious and disobedient. And that's verse 6. Just walking through the steps of a successful siege warfare. And that gives us insight into what's happening to the spiritual realm. That's what's happening all around us, even though we do not see it with our physical eyes. And even before we think about the weapons of warfare, it's necessary for us to understand that we are in a spiritual warfare. This is what's happening right now. There's a word of God is being proclaimed. This is what's happening in your day-to-day -day lives. And in this spiritual warfare, it turns out that our enemies are building strongholds. Satan, the devil, evil spirits, they are building strongholds. And isn't that true? Perhaps you have come across this stronghold. You've encountered this stronghold. 
the stronghold seems to be happening in people's minds and it's built in people's mind and people's hearts. The devil's weapon is, as we know, there are lies. He uses lies as his weapon. That's how he made Adam and Eve fall into sin in the garden. He lied to them. He said, you'll surely not die when you eat from the tree. You're not going to die. Not only that, you're going to be like God. In fact, even when they already were perfectly God's image. In that same way, even today, Satan keeps lying and he keeps building strongholds in people's minds and people's hearts, using arguments, opinions, and thoughts. And perhaps you have encountered one of these strongholds. Haven't you had experience of trying to persuade someone or trying to reason with someone? But you get, you get nowhere, you're going nowhere with it. They're blind, they're in denial, they're suppressing the truth, they're stuck, they're setting their sinful ways. Humanly speaking, it feels helpless. So if you've experienced this, Satan does build strongholds, doesn't he? Not only just does he build strongholds, he's building an army for himself. And this is not just something that happens outside of our community. This is something that happens even in our community, in our church, even in our families. Perhaps you know people who have strongholds built up in their minds and in their hearts, and you just cannot reach their heart. Perhaps this is a family member of a loved one. Now, when we understand that spiritual landscape, that spiritual reality, that's when we see how powerful God's word, God's word can be. And that's when this weapons of warfare becomes necessary. And thanks to God that we are given this powerful weapons of warfare. Because this weapon of warfare, God's word, can destroy strongholds. Sometimes in our own strength, in humanly speaking, it seems unbreakable when someone is captured with the ideology of evolution or gender, gender ideology, or hedonism. But God is able to break down those walls. God is able to break down those towers, just as he did with the walls of Jericho. And also what Paul says is that we can make every, take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ, to make it obey Christ. How wonderful is that? Think of the thoughts that arise in your mind. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we can make every, take all of those thoughts and make it captive and make it obey Christ? It shows how powerful God's word is. Paul says, this is what God's word does to people. And he's actually speaking out of experience. He at one point was steeped into Judaism. He was a Pharisee. But when he encountered Christ to the road to Damascus, his stronghold was broken down. Every thought was taken captive and he was made obedient to Christ and he dedicated his entire life to Christ, even being poured out like an offering, like a libation. This is not something that just happened to Paul. This happened to millions of people. Even today, we know that people are converted. They're broken down. Their strongholds are broken down through God's word. We know of militant atheists 
who became Christians. We know of people who have set out to destroy God's word, to prove that God's word is wrong, and in that process actually become Christians, and they submit their lives to Christ. There are those who have bought into the homosexual ideology and also practices have given into that lustful lifestyle who turn their life around and submit to Christ. There are even those who have also bought into the transgender ideology and go as far as to receiving surgery and yet are disappointed Then they find true joy and peace in Jesus Christ. And they look forward to receiving a new glorious body in the life to come. These things happen. These things happen. Strongholds are broken down through God's word. It's amazing. And we're not just talking about practical things in this life, things that, that makes us flourish in this life. We're dealing with something with eternal consequences. These people, once their strongholds built up by Satan are broken down, they are set free. And they become Christians and they inherit eternal life. And doesn't that show how powerful God's word is? It's more powerful than any of us can imagine. It has divine power. And when we think about these things, it's no surprise that the primary task of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on this earthly ministry was in fact preaching and teaching. Think about that. He had the power to heal people with all kinds of illnesses. He could heal leprosy. He could heal, stop blood flow. He could raise people who were incapable of walking. Yet what did he choose to do with his time on this earth? He chose to preach and teach. In fact, the healing, all those healings were called signs. They were subordinate to his preaching. He was to authenticate his message. What was the primary task of the church? Again, I was preaching. The apostles devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry of God's word. And shows how powerful preaching is. Think of how Christ defeated Satan when he was tempted. Satan, the prince of this world, Christ defeated him by quoting scripture. Again, he's using these weapons of warfare, destroying strongholds. So are you using these weapons? Is that how you understand God's word? As you are a prophet, as you are called to speak God's word, do you see the spiritual reality? I want to encourage you to continue to use God's word. I want to encourage you to dedicate yourself again to studying God's word this year and to sharing God's word in your homes, at your work, at your neighborhood. I also want you to understand and see how powerful God's word is. And the next time you see a Bible, don't just see it as a Bible, but see it as a powerful weapon. When you gather around at the table doing devotions, know that you're claiming territory for Christ. You're breaking down strongholds that Satan is building. When you're quietly or gently and meekly sharing the hope that you have with your neighbor or with your co-workers, know that that's powerful stuff. Powerful things are happening. Strongholds are being broken down. 
And see what Paul says. Again in verse 5, take every thought captive to obey Christ. The point is not to just break down strongholds. This needs to be understood in a bigger picture of war. Who is the king? What kind of battle are we talking about? This is a war between the seed of the woman and the serpent. This is a battle between Satan and Christ. So when strongholds are being broken down, Christ's territory, Christ's kingdom is being expanded Or you could think of it this way. Each person has a stronghold, and there's a throne in those strongholds, in those castles. And who's sitting there if they're an unbeliever? Satan. They're under Satan's rule. They're under Satan's reign. And then you penetrate that and break those walls down, walls down with God's word. You pull Satan down from his throne, and you seat Christ there. That's what's happening. Through the weapons of warfare, through our sharing of the gospel, the territory of Christ, the kingdom of Christ is being advanced. And how glorious is that, that we get to be part of that warfare. So as prophets, share God's word, pick up this weapon of warfare, and serve your king, Jesus Christ. Amen. I lead you in a word of prayer. Our gracious God, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us this powerful weapon that we can use to defend ourselves from the attacks of Satan, of the world, and of our flesh. We thank you that you do not leave us helpless, but you equip us with your armor with the divine armor armor, that we may stand against our enemies. We also thank you that you give us and call us to partake in the great adventure of, of expanding your kingdom, that we can be part of this, that our, our lives can be filled with so great a meaning and purpose. And as your prophets, help us to equip ourselves with your word, Help us to read your word. Help us to dwell in your word. Help us to store up your word in our hearts by memorizing them. We pray that you would use us powerfully. Give us opportunities where we can share your word to the world. Give us opportunities where we can share your word with our loved ones. Help us to tear down strongholds. Help us to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And as we are immersed in your word, we pray that all our thoughts, all the thoughts that arise in our hearts and our thoughts in our minds may be pleasing to you in line with the mind of Christ. We confess that this is not something that we can do in our own. Would you grant us your Holy Spirit that we may do so? In Christ's name alone we pray.